Welcome to Value Laden, a series where we hear from educational leaders on the role values and principles play in what they do. I'm your host, Kunya Mishra. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Dr. Pam Moran, retired superintendent from the Albemarle County Public Schools in Virginia, who, over her 32-year career, spent time working in almost every area of education. Pam discussed the ways that her grandfather, her teachers, and other mentors throughout her career shaped her approach to education. As always, I'll be joined by one of our producers for the show to get her perspective on our conversation. We covered a lot of ground, so without further ado, let's get started. Pam, it's great to have you on this podcast today. Our guest today is Pam Moran, who is a retired superintendent. Uh, after 32 years of work in almost every aspect of education. And rather than my talk about her, uh, I will let her tell us a little bit about herself. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days, and then we'll dig into the background. Punya, it's great to be here with you today. You know, I have such high regard for the work you've done, and you certainly were one of the influencers in the contemporary learning um, uh, evolution, revolution that we engaged in when I was a superintendent in Albemarle County Public Schools in Virginia. So give us a little bit of a background about how you got to these viewpoints that you have hold now. I mean, you started as a biology major, if I if I did my homework correctly. And I, I would, would go back to that. I grew up in the deep south, the low country of South Carolina. In the pre-integration era, I went to segregated schools. So I was in all white schools all the way, interestingly, until 1970 when I graduated from high school, um, that South Carolina was one of the last states in the United States to integrate schools. So that was a, a, that's something that really, to some extent, I think about a lot. Um, what are the constructs of growing up in segregated schools that no matter how um, perhaps um, uh, you you think about things differently than you think occurred in your young life, that you do always carry that with you forward experiences. And I would say that probably one of my early influencers was my grandfather. And I talk about him, I've written about him because he was a very uneducated person in terms of even going through school. He was born in, in um, 1889 and finished eighth grade and became a person who lived um, with the land as a farmer for most of his life. And one of the things that I learned from him as a young child is to really think about the relationships that exist on a farm. And he was really good at having me understand some things that I think are really important today. One is that everything is connected, that you can't grow plants in soil that does not have the, the nutrients that the plants need to exist. And that insects are important in the environment, that snakes are important in the environment, that everything has its place in how it contributes to creating a balanced ecosystem. And that was something that he, he would not have used that language in that way, but he really understood that. He also understood as somebody that lived in um, circumstances where there was not a lot of money in his life, um, at least at the point where, where I interacted with him, um, that everything that, that you had that came onto the farm 
needed to be repurposed. I describe my family as being a maker family. My granddad was certainly a maker. He would take jugs and turn them upside down back in the day when milk jugs turned into plastics. Um, some people would say, throw them out. My granddad would take them, turn them upside down in his garden. He was a, a gardener till the end of his life, basically. And he would use those as a tool for watering his garden. He would go out early in the morning. He would have cut the top off of the bottom of the uh, milk jug, pour water into it, and let it seep down into the soil, basically setting up a flow irrigation system. And I think about that, you know, that at some level all over the world, when you think about third world countries or third world cultures that even exist in some countries that are pretty sophisticated today that idea of people being able to look at anything and see it as part of potential solutions to problems in their lives is something that's really critically important. But at the point in time where we developed schools around middle-class values, that at some level we lost some really important learning that exist in places where people don't have the resources of the middle class in America. And I think about that the return to sort of a maker culture um, that the middle class discovered and it really got them very excited about learning how to use it. That in reality, third world cultures have always been maker cultures. But I, I was really glad you brought up the repurposing sort of the story from your grandfather, because one of the things that I've always seen in you that I think is like, it's, it's not just sort of having those values and moral compass, but I've always seen you as somebody who's willing to go in and tinker. And, and that helps me understand where that sort of comes from. So I learned the, the value of seeing connections and relationships and to think of the world as an ecosystem really from my grandfather. Um, and I think that, that I also learned the idea of that challenges or opportunities that we are given and that we can either reject the opportunity to solve a challenge or we can see it. And, and when you mentioned curiosity early on in the conversation with me today, that I think about that the idea that, that my grandfather was curious, I grew up in a, a curious family of people who were makers. So I think about that, you know, that framing up from family members of how to look at the world through a, a, a curious eye, how to really think about that challenges are simply problems waiting to get solved, not to be rejected and the connectivity of the world, particularly in the natural environment, are things that, that really help to inform up some of my thinking. Now, I had a, I, my high school was an eight through 12 high school, and I had, I think, about 300 kids in that high school. And I had a science teacher who was just considered to be an icon in our community because she, had gotten a master's degree from Emory University and come back to Bamberg to work. And she was, she taught all of the science in my high school. But Miss Hires, who's still alive, um, she's in her early 90s, and I occasionally see her when I go home, 
when I was in 10th grade and I had her for biology, she said, you know, Pam, you seem to have a real love for biology. And I'm wondering if you thought about maybe when you go to college, you know, and college was something I knew was going to be really hard for me because my parents didn't have resources. She said, but when you go to college, it wasn't if you go, but it was when um, you ought to really, you know, if this is something you're passionate about, you ought to consider majoring in it. And then, you know, if you decided you wanted to go into medicine or, you know, wherever you wanted to do or teaching, she was really emphatic that I should consider being a teacher, that you do that. So, you know, that's one of those things that, you know, when you're a kid, you kind of file it away somewhere and you don't think about it. But when I graduated and went to Furman University, it was kind of fascinating. Furman is in uh, South Carolina. It's a small liberal arts college. I went on a college music scholarship because I played clarinet and oboe and they needed an oboist in the, uh, the orchestra. Oh, I didn't know about the whole music connection. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, so that was really, you know, um, kind of an interesting piece that I ended up getting a music scholarship from Furman and some academic scholarships and lots of loans from the, from the uh, um, government at some point, I had thought about maybe going into medicine, but really wasn't that particularly attracted to it. But I took a field bio biology course and fell in love with field biology, which is fascinating. I'm working on my BS degree in, in biology and kind of specializing in ecology, um, zoology, um, botany, field bio, Etc. So I was really, you know, building a portfolio of coursework that could have let me go in a variety of different directions. But I really loved the field biology. And I thought as I was getting ready to, to head into my senior year, that what I really wanted to do was to go to the University of Georgia, do a master's degree there in herpetology, and thought, oh, here's what I'll be doing. I'm going to live my life chasing snakes around in the Everglades. Well, in that period of time, I met a guy, fell in love. We decided, as a lot of people did in the early 70s, mid 70s, to get married right out of college. And he's going to the University of Virginia. So I'm thinking, so what am I going to do? I quickly retreaded into using those student loans and um, adding some education courses in and landed in Charlottesville, Virginia with this guy. And one of the best parts about that is he left and I stayed. <laughs> so, um, which catapulted me into the family I have today. But I got a job in a middle school that was part of a school division in Virginia that had just received a major mega million dollar grant from the federal government, what were called innovation grants in the 1970s, Title IV-C. And it was to infuse because, you know, that was when the early 70s was when the environmental movement was really full uh, steam. And so I worked in that school. And that's where I met another person that had been probably the greatest influencer in terms of my core values around education. And that was an um, administrator in the middle school where I worked who became really for me a mentor for life. Now, I will tell you, Punya, I will try to make this story short, but I thought I was going to get fired on the first day of school in the first 15 minutes of my teaching career. 
with all these student loans sitting on my back. And here's how it happened. I had um, a, a clinical instructor that was my supervising teacher when I did student teaching at the last minute. She said to me, Pam, when you go in on your first day of teaching, you wanna be sure you really grab kids' attention and get them to get really excited about science because if you do that on the first day, in the first moments, they will stay with you for the rest of the year with a level of excitement. So I thought, well, how can I do that? So here's what I did. I took, took a garter snake. He was probably about 24, 25 inches long. He was a pretty big garter snake. And I put him in a pillowcase, tied him up, took him into class, and I come into the class and, you know, the kids come in and I say to them, what do you think is in my pillowcase? And they're just making wild guesses. And finally, I started to untie the pillowcase and pull my garter snake out. Well, my hands were really sweaty because this was the first 15 minutes of my first day teaching ever. <laughs> and the snake, I, I start to hold the snake. And I say to the kids, don't worry as they see him. And they're like, oh, and ah, you know, kind of excited about it. Don't worry, he doesn't bite. About that time, the snake slides out of my hands because my hands are sweaty. And he catches on my right um, hand, on the back of my hand. And all of a sudden, I've got blood dripping to the floor. And the kids start screaming. And I don't want to stereotype girls and boys, but this is pretty stereotypical. The girls were basically backing away and screaming. And the boys were yelling, and this one little boy at the front of the room yelled, don't worry, I'll kill him. And about that time, as he's yelling that out, the door opens because this was an open space school. The science labs were one of the few places that had doors. He comes in and he watches, and I get the kids under control. He doesn't say a word. He waits until things are kind of settled, and he leaves. I spend the morning thinking, I'm going to get fired today because I created chaos in the first 15 minutes and the principal witnessed it all. About probably sometime mid-morning, late morning, there's a knock on the door and it's the secretary for this administrator. And she says, Dr. English would like to see you at the end of the day. And I'm thinking all day long, this is it. I go into his office at the end of the day and I sit down and we start to talk and he says to me, so if you had to do this all over again, what would you do? And I said, probably not bring a snake to school on the first day. And he said, I think that probably would be something you might wanna think about in the future. And at that point I said to him, the future, I thought you brought me in here to fire me. And he looked at me and he said, if I fired you, how would you ever learn to teach? Now, in that moment, what he taught me is that mistakes should not be the end of the game for you as a, a young educator. Along the way, I learned he became a mentor for life, and I stayed in the classroom and became a very successful teacher and then an administrator actually in that middle school at some point along the way. But what he, he said to me at another point in my life is he said, when kids make mistakes, those should not be life sentences when it comes to discipline. That 
a 14 year old or a 17 year old or a five year old, however old the child is, if they're in school, you have to think of mistakes as being an opportunity to learn. He taught me that on the first day of school about myself, but he taught me that about kids as we grew over time into this relationship. The other thing that he taught me when I was a young administrator that informs some of the ways that I think about this whole tinkering thing that you brought up is that when I was a young administrator, I had a teacher come in and she said, I have a really crazy idea. And I said, what's that? She was an English teacher and I was a, a middle school associate principal for instruction. And she said, I want to throw out the basal textbooks, the basils, and go to a novels-based program. And I said, do what? She said, I want to, want to use novels. And I called John, who was no longer at the school, but was a central office administrator. And I said, I don't know what to do. I got a teacher that just came in with this crazy idea of getting rid of the textbooks and using novels in the place. And he said to me something then, he said, you know, Pam, I'm gonna tell you this. If you say no to her, and you may have to work with her on how to do that, because this could be pretty expensive, so you may have to come up with a plan. But if you tell her no, not only will she go out and never come back to you with an idea for something that would make school better for kids, she'll tell 10 other teachers and they'll never come to you either. He said, that's where my whole focus on getting to yes came from that conversation of that when people come to you with crazy ideas, if you say no, you set in motion a culture in which no becomes the dominant way that, that administrators respond to teachers. If you figure out how to get to yes, you will create a culture of creativity that will cause teachers to be doing what my granddad did, which is always looking at challenges as opportunities to come up with solutions. I think this is sort of a natural point to transition a little bit into, can you talk a little bit about sort of what gives meaning and purpose to what you think or, or how you see yourself? I think that for me, Punya, that um, I've been driven as a learner since I was a young child. And I think that that does come from a family. And, you know, I'm first generation college in my family. But what I think about that, that having learning validated for me in so many different ways in my family, um, oftentimes informally, in school that what I realized is that pursuing the things that you love, the things that you're interested in, the things that you're passionate about, give you a sense of meaning and purpose in life. And that passions and interests are as different among us when you bring a group of people together, whether it's teachers on a faculty or children in a classroom, and that what I realized when I taught in this amazing middle school is that we could, by finding out what kids were interested in, for me it was snakes, 
And that led me to a lot of things in life that I would have not otherwise explored that had nothing to do with snakes. But that when you can find those entry points into what people love to do, whether it's to build, whether it's to research, whether it's to create, to design, to engineer, um, to acquire new information. Um, it's what I call the search, connect, communicate, make model. When you figure that out about people, what, what really motivates them, then you can start to scaffold and construct pathways with them to the things that we adults think are important to learn. And I think that, that that's one of the biggest conundrums that teachers have is that we have this prescribed body of knowledge that someone sitting in some committee somewhere said, this is important for kids to learn. And then we took that in the 20th century and decontextualized it. So we separated math from the real world. We separated science from the natural world and from the experiential base, experiential and experimental base that is critical to understanding the concepts of science. We separated in the 80s our kids from tools when we started taking tools out of schools. Um, we, so we created this decontextualized environment where your passion and your interest as a human being, whether you were a teacher or a kid, was separated from the act of education. And so for me, what gives me a sense of purpose in life is being able to really pursue things that intrigue me, that interest me, that motivate me to want to know more. So you have this really rich sort of conceptualization of, you know, the sort of the diversity of interests that people, students have, learners have. And then now you are this, you are going up through the hierarchy of the school administration system. And so then you are now leading an organization. How do you get others to buy into this vision? Others to see that there is possible, there are possible, because I know some of the, the I've been having following your work for, I don't know, 10 years now or more. Some of the things that you did in these sort of these middle schools and, you know, and so on is like truly transformative. And I'm always sort of impressed by that because it requires taking, bringing a whole community along. It requires bringing the school board along. It requires bringing teachers along. And so how do you, how do you go around apart from the sheer force of your personality? What else do you bring to that to make that happen? Because that to me is like incredibly, uh, and it's one of the questions that I struggle, you know, I try to, uh, understand better. So how do you go about changing that system, which at some level seems very rigid or unwilling to change? Well, and, and I think that it, it has to come from a lot of different sources. And one of the things that I say is that any change that sits um, on the shoulders of a person or a small group of people is not a change that's sustainable. That change that's sustainable has to get a lot of people um, seeing the change as being something of value. So if you go back to values, um, how do you have people have a sense of what's important that a change is going to address that um, is needed in their life? So one of the things that I really tried to do was to say, 
how do we unlock the compliance lock and start to really honor the people who are the creatives, who have ideas, and rather than having them become isolated or leave the system, how do we sustain them inside the system? And then how do we find more of those people to become a part of the team? I had other people similar to that all over the system who were career switchers. Um, uh, one of the women that I'm, I'm still very close to had been an, a, a Beltway lawyer in DC and was a career switcher to teach English and came in and really worked to upend the, the canon of what kids in high school read as part of the English curriculum. She said, you know, how do we create a more diverse set of opportunities for kids to read and work together? And, you know, people who have been educated to become English teachers worship the canon, right? So how do you, how do you break that up? You got to have people that think outside the canon box. And so what I tried to do was to really, as a leader, get out of the way of the creatives and to give them space to do the work that generated up creative ideas. And again, I'll go outside of education to borrow a couple things. One is, um, if you look at the Skunk Works model that emerged in the, the 1940s um, out of World War II invention, um, if you look at um, some of the work that started to come out of the design thinking world outside of education, all of a sudden you start to realize that in corporations where they put their creatives to work on new solutions to problems that, um, you know, Bell Labs is the other one that I love, Bell Labs example, that what you end up with is as a leader, you've got to protect the creatives to do the work of creating and then to figure out how to not let that work just sit with those creatives, but to have it start to influence the entire culture and system. And so I, over time, realized that there were some things that work against that in education. And I can point to some examples of where I failed with this myself. So if a teacher comes to you and they want to use novels instead of basal readers, going back to that first example I gave you about getting to yes, and I say yes to Lynn, yeah, let's do that. If Lynn's the only teacher that gets money to buy novels, and she's the only teacher in the English department that's using them, then it goes nowhere. It's kind of like the tree that falls in the forest. And if there's nobody there, you don't, the tree never fell. You don't hear it. Um, there's no sound. The reality is when you have creatives that stay in schools working in isolation of the bigger group, if they don't have pathways to influence the, the changes that, that we would want for kids, then what happens is that their work doesn't matter at all. It only matters to the children that, that they serve or to the school as a principal that, that serves a school. So what I tried to do is to start to think about rather than funding teachers in isolation or a school in isolation, how do we actually, anytime that somebody has a good idea, how do we get them to 
figure out who else needs to be on the team. If you're a teacher in first grade and you have an idea that you want to do that changes something about uh, math, who else can you get to, who can you get to enlist with you in that project? So you automatically have more voices at the table. Um, and the more, and you know, and I would say sometimes to people, who's the person that you can get on the team that actually would resist this idea? Because that person will see blind spots that you would not necessarily see. And when you start to hear teachers and others reinforce that model in the way that they work around spinning out creativity in different spaces and different places, all of a sudden what you start to have is what I call a culture of contagious creativity. And that means that it's starting to leapfrog, hopscotch, and connect into really what is more of an ecosystem model where the creativity of people can be different with different interests and different passions but it all connects to what I would call those core values that came out of our strategic planning piece. Because we used to have a lot of people that would come visit Albemarle and they would come and they would want to know what's the secret sauce. And I would say, we don't have a real secret sauce. I can give you what I see as some of the important learnings that we've taken away from our experiences in creating changes in space, in culture, in the way we use time, in our um, instructional practices, in um, the way we use resources. I can, can talk to you about that, but I'm not going to say, here's the recipe book. But I said, but here's one thing I can tell you, and I'm going to speak to the superintendents that might hear this at some point. When I say to, to, to people, what's, your, what's in your innovation portfolio? they start to talk about their strategic plan. And when people would say to us, we want to know more about your maker spaces, and I would, would show them our maker spaces and what our kids were doing and creating in those spaces, sometimes you would have people who have high levels of, of um, positional power inside school systems say, we really like that, but we can't do that right now because it won't fit into our strategic plan. At that point, I started to say to people, you know, you can't let a strategic plan get in the way of a good idea. Um, and if your kids need something right now and you're willing to put it off for three years, then you're willing to sacrifice three years in kids' lives before you get to a time where it's okay or you have the resources to do something that you know will benefit your kids. So one of the things that I would talk to them about is if you don't build an innovation portfolio, and that becomes your job as a superintendent to manage that portfolio, to know what's in it, and to protect the people who are working on the work inside that portfolio. What you will end up with is a strategic plan that basically focuses on two things. And one is operations, and the other is um, the management of um, proven strategies. So what is it that you might start to do in your system to build your innovation portfolio? How do you build your skunk works? And I'll say to people, I'll put up a picture of some skunks and say, who are your skunks? And how do you protect them? And what are the projects they're working on? 
And if you can't give me that answer, then you don't have an innovation portfolio. And so we would, and I would say, the purpose of an innovation portfolio is not just to create these innovative projects, but an innovation portfolio should be the seed for your strategic plan. So if you start maker spaces and you start one in a high school and it works really well, at some point you want to move it out of the innovation bucket or portfolio and into the strategic portfolio because that's when you start to nurture it to scale. And it may not look the same in every school, but if having kids engage with their hands with tools to create, design, engineer, and build is an important part of the strategy of learning, then why would you restrict it to one school or one classroom or one department? How do you make it part of your strategy for the whole system? And so, you know, all of a sudden, what I started to hear from superintendents as I would move around is people would say, let me talk to you about something that I've got in my innovation portfolio right now. Or how do you, Pam, protect your innovation portfolio? How do you, how do you support it? And I would say, you don't protect it by hiding it. You protect it by making it transparent to parents. Because I got to tell you, when we started doing maker spaces, I had parents start to say, my kid's coming home from school talking about things that they're doing at school that I've never heard them talk about before. Usually when I ask my kid, what'd you do at school? They'll say nothing. Now when I say, what are you doing at school? They'll tell me about something they're making. So one of the things that when I've spoken to people who have worked with you is that one thing that seemed to be in was a willingness to question these assumptions, you know, what people call the grammar of schooling. And I think that that the fact that to me is like the most fascinating piece because that's what brings about the systemic change. So maybe uh, just speak a little bit about this, this willingness to question things that we take for granted in education and how this values perspective sort of allows you to do that. Because I think that to me is one of the most powerful things there uh, that makes it possible. One of the things that I think about is that none of us like to have what we think is the good work we're doing challenged because it's either good work or we think it's the right thing to do. And I go back to Joseph Lister who discovered that washing hands prevented um, uh, women in childbirth from dying from sepsis after childbirth. And he said it took doctors 40 years to adopt washing hands because they felt like if they admitted that they had not been doing something that was the right thing to do, that it would make them look bad. And so I think about that we oftentimes don't question assumptions, one, because there's no dissonance, or two, because if we start to question what we're doing, we can start to feel like, well, we've really been screwing up. I've tried to adopt a philosophy in my own life that says, just because what we're doing gets good results, does not mean that we're getting good results for all kids. And so therefore, 
we always need to be asking the question, what else can we do? I started to refer to it as, you know, in the broadband industry, they refer to the last mile. And I used to ask the question, what's our last mile here? What have we not done that we need to do? And why have we not done it? And so that starts to question the assumptions. And I think that this pandemic, if nothing else, if people are using a wide lens, what we're going to discover is that there are lots of points of dissonance that are in our faces right now that we ignored when we were sitting in schools with kids. And so that's one of the things that I think about is that questioning assumptions means that you have to be willing to make yourself vulnerable. You have to kind of bring brown it. You've got to be able to um, embrace people challenging your assumptions because you may not see the blind spots. And you have to be willing when you realize that there's something that could be different and better in the work that we do, that you're willing to explore pathways that get you down towards that work. And that can be uncomfortable. It can be embarrassing. It can be um, um, challenging um, legally, emotionally, uh, culturally. But if you don't do it, then what you tend to do is to stay stuck and not move. And what I think is one of the most important things that leaders have always had to do, but they've, they've had the luxury to not do it, is to pivot. If you can't see the problem, see over the horizon and go, we got to pivot to address this, then what you do is you leave your people, your teaching community, your kids and your parents with no real sense that you have a clue as a leader about what is needed to bring the community together. They see you without a plan. School divisions, school districts where leaders have a skill set to do quick pivots, know how to plan on the fly, and they don't believe that the strategic plan is the solution to every problem they face. Yeah, and I think that sort of comes back to sort of the values that you bring to it because then your values are not in the strategic plan, they are above and beyond and bigger than that. And clearly, you know, in this conversation, my respect for you, which was already pretty high, very high, has even grown further because of just the, just understanding better the trajectory of your career and how you have managed to do all the work that you do and that you continue to do. Um, so thank you very much for your time. You're most welcome, Pooja. Most welcome. And I am now joined by our producer, Jennifer Stein. Jennifer, what did you think of this episode? So this episode was really fun because Pam is such a great storyteller. I, I love hearing the anecdotes and stories that she tells as a way to, to give a, us a, a lesson that she learned along the way in her career. So that made it really fun. Yeah, she is a great storyteller, isn't she? For instance, this whole idea from her grandfather about seeing this, understanding this ecosystem, her degree in biology, 
uh, where she wanted to work with snakes. Um, and then uh, to bring that ecological perspective to school leadership, I think these stories that she shared with us were were quite insightful in helping us uh, understand her better. Yeah, I, I like the vision of her spending her career studying snakes in the Everglades, but it, it seems like she's too much of a people person for that to have ended up actually being her. Yeah, that that was not a career that I I would see, Pam. I mean, but the story of her bringing the class, you know, snake to the first day of school uh, when she was a new teacher, I think that was a that was a hilarious story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I I agree. I liked that one. I think I, I really liked how she talked about how she tried to nurture creativity and kind of risk taking in teachers, the idea of getting to yes. And then later in the conversation where she talks about having wanting to create a skunk works environment and as a superintendent, how you need to have this innovation portfolio where where teachers are trying things out and that you kind of protect those innovators. Yeah. The big thing that stood out for what Pam talked about and what she does is this idea of that seeing this as a system, as an ecology, where there are many pieces interacting with each other, and that if you have to have sustainable change, it cannot happen in one space and not in others. So it's this challenge of bringing sort of this culture into play. Because as she says, like the first time you say no to a teacher who comes in with an idea, it just sends the message that there are things that we are not willing to try you know, which are helpful to the educate to our learners. Um, and I think that that to me was, and, and that's something that she did at the district level, which to me is absolutely impressive. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the idea that it's not just about individual teachers who are, have the freedom to try new things, but then bringing those successful practices into a more strategic portfolio of activity across the district. And she arti- articulated that well. Yeah. And at the, at the same time, she says, you can't let a strategic plan get in the way of a good idea. So I think that it's that sort of flexibility that, yes, we need to have these plans, which are three years in, you know, in, in sort of planning and implementation. But if a good idea comes along, uh, she asked this sort of rhetorical question, right, in the interview where she says, are you going to wait three years, you know, to allow your students access to this great idea? Uh, which you know is going to be beneficial to their education. You know, so there is this sort of, yes, a broad vision, but also a sense of flexibility and play, which I think is like really important um, that she sort of talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she she talks about the need to be able to pivot. Um, and if you're, a, if you're a leader in education, that that's an essential kind of quality. The other thing that really stood out for me, and this is, I think, for almost all our guests, you know, I think uh, this piece comes out where she talks about, you know, taking this idea from sort of business or broadband, you know, what is our last mile, right? I mean, that that education is a process that there is, you know, always being aware of which learners are not being or not getting what they need. And that is sort of a core value, which I think is so important in in the work that that these educational leaders do and what in the work that we as educators do. Yeah, yes, for sure. And she, she talks about having to... F- find the individual passions and interests for for each learner, you know, that of course we're all different and we all have different things that motivate us. And so that that needing to be a, a core part of how you approach it. Yeah. And I think this is another theme that seems to cut across all the episodes, you know, in this season. Each of the people that we have interviewed in this first season have very different backgrounds that they started with. Sean Lesher, his training was in music. Uh, Pam's was in uh, 
you know, in, in herpetology, uh, future guest Glenn Lineberry comes in from business. And I think they understand sort of deeply that one can dive deep into a subject and then move on. But there are aspects of that that influence how you think. And that even though that might not become the life career path that you choose, it gives you certain ways of thinking and being and, and ways and disciplinary ways of thinking that become important in the long run. And I think that's something that all of these, these uh, educators sort of share. So, Punya, who's coming up next? Yeah, our next guest, the next episode is uh, with a conversation with Glenn Lineberry, who's a principal at Miami Junior Senior High School here in Arizona. Glenn's a really interesting person, again, you know, coming in from a world, you know, of business into education, and I think brings some of that entrepreneurial way of thinking uh, into the work that he does. And, you know, Glenn's a good friend, so it's, it's, it's going to be a good conversation. Great. I will look forward to hearing it. Thank you for listening to Value Laden. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and see you next time. Value Laden is produced at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Executive producers are Dr. Sean Leahy and Claire Gilbert. The show is produced by Jennifer Stein and Enrique Borges. Research was conducted by Shagun Singa. A special thank you to Elizabeth Mirabal for her coordination of interviews and overall support. Audio production provided by Claire Gilbert.